So um, what we like to do is preach through books of the Bible. We're in Acts again, and it is called Spirit-Empowered Mission. Um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we've done other books, both Old and New Testament. Go to our website. You can download some of the oldest series we did, First Corinthians, the book of Genesis is on there. Um, and uh, I want to just thank God this morning and praise him that he has given us this gift called the Bible, his word to study, the gift of, and the freedom we have to actually look at his word together. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's bow our head and turn to the Lord of the word. Fathers, just thank you again for this privileged gift that we have. We delight, we take joy in the privilege of coming together in your presence under the scripture. We thank you that men of old, that you set apart, that were moved along by the Holy Spirit to give us your word. Every jot, every tittle is your word. And we pray this morning as we glimpse into the character and the nature of this young church in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. Father, we pray and we ask that you would shape us and mold us as a church, as a community, to reflect that characteristics. So grant your blessing now in the reading of your word. Come, Spirit of God, help us to read, to learn, to be transformed by it into the image and glory of Christ for his name's sake and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. I'm going to read scripture and then we'll dismiss the kids. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we are. Turn in your Bibles. There's Bibles in the back. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. Uh, Again, there's Bibles in the back, some ESVs. If you have another translation, uh, that's fine. You are welcome here. We're going to talk about that today. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. 242. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had things in common, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So children, you're dismissed. And for the rest of us, we're in Acts chapter 2. And, you know, as we get into this very important text of Scripture, uh, and we get this, this look, this, this first glance in, into this newly birthed people that will later be called Christians, I think it's imperative, and you'll see in a moment, that we, we, we just take a look at, get some background information, and put that text in proper context. As you know, Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. It is his second volume of one book, Luke, the gospel according to Luke, and Acts. In Luke, God, uh, the gospel according to Luke, he, Luke told us all that Jesus began to do and to teach until his ascension, until he was taken up. The book of Acts is then the, the next part of that where we look at what Jesus is continually, if that's a word, continuing to do and teach through the Holy Spirit that empowers his disciples to witness to the glory and the work of Jesus. 
If you remember, Jesus tells him, listen, I want you to wait. He ascended to heaven. He tells him to wait in Jerusalem just as Jesus was anointed and appointed uh, when he was baptized and the Spirit of God descended upon him. He says, I want you to wait so you can go in that power, in the work and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of who I am. And we know that's exactly what happened. They waited The promise came because God always keeps his promise. And the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, baptized the believers. And then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, does exactly what God said he would do. It's amazing. He began to witness of the work and the person of Jesus. Last time we were in Acts, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. And uh, we saw Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preach the first Christian message. He stands up full of the Holy Spirit and proclaims his glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who denied him is now boldly standing up, declaring him. Peter says, listen, Jesus' miracles and work among you and the power of God that Jesus uh, uh, declared and showed was, was a clear sign that God was with him. And instead of loving this Savior, instead of embracing this Savior, you handed him over to be crucified and you killed him. You can read that in Acts chapter 2. He told him twice, you murdered him, you crucified him. The Lord, the Messiah who came to save and rescue and love you, you murdered. You put him to the cross. You crucified him with excruciating pain, he was hung on the cross. You know the word excruciating comes from a Latin word that explains the cross particularly? And Peter, like with a hot poker, right? Right in the eye. You did this to him. In chapter 2, verse 37, the Bible tells us again, the Holy Spirit shows up and does exactly what he said he would do. He convicts the heart. Verse 37, chapter 2, what shall we do? Man, you're right. And Peter tells them, repent. Turn from your sins. Yes, even murdering the king of glory. Repent, turn, and be baptized because of the forgiveness or for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look what happens next, verse 41. 3,000 people received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And here's what I want you to see in this instruction this morning. When we get to chapter 2, verse 42, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer, is the conclusion, is the result of this Pentecost scene. Okay? You need to see that. What is happening here is that the direct result of the giving of the Spirit, the opening of the heart and mind to see Christ, and the empowering work of mission. So as we look at this, and we'll look at chapter 2 today, and look at the practical way this church lived life together, you know, the way they, they, they gather together, you, uh, you need to see this. It's imperative that we keep in the front of our minds, not the back, but in the front. The grid of all that we're reading comes through the gospel. The gospel launched this movement. The gospel uh, is, is, is what propelled these people into mission. 
This brand new people found the secret of joy. This brand new people found the secret of true gladness of heart. The glue, the glue that bonds them together, that propels them into the world, is because each of them have experienced deeply Christ by the gift of the Holy Spirit through or because of the forgiveness of their sins. You need to see that. The slate is clean. That though their sins be red like crimson, in Jesus Christ it is white as snow. Now listen, before we look at what the church did and when they gathered together, we must first remember the gospel. You see, if we lose sight of why we're here, if we lose sight of why we're here, we'll, 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 we can get a sense that the, the, this, this meeting took place because it was coerced or it was, you know, it was done through manipulation. It was forced. But what we'll see is that when the gospel takes root in the heart of believers, when people respond to, their go- to the gospel, they respond in their whole hearts serving and loving and caring for one another. So verses 42 through 47 must be seen through that lens. Our sin caused the murder of the perfect spotless lamb of God. And he looks at us and he says, I love you anyway. I I forgive you. That's the gospel. That in and of myself, in and of myself, I am desperately sinful, dead in my sins, on my way to hell, unable to respond to God. He comes and he dies for me, takes my punishment. I'm so wicked he had to die, but I am loved, I am valued. He cares about me that he was glad to. Now, if you believe that, I mean, if you really believe that, that will have radical, radical transformation in community. Radical. If we believe that not one shred of my moral goodness, of all my Bible study church going, or even my lack of it, does not bring one shred of worthy effort for my salvation, that is strictly by sheer grace that I am forgiven, accepted by God, reconciled to God, then we'll live a life of un- under the word of God, in, uh, you know, in prayer as we will see. We won't look down on others. The early church gathered with all kinds of people. Remember, if you go back a couple of weeks, the church gave birth where people coming, members of the day of Pentecost, from all over, rich, the poor, different cultures and languages. What you see is this massive group of people having community together. Having community together. Out of a humble and grateful heart, we'll look We'll, we'll look the same. We'll, we'll look for ways to encourage one another, to speak the truth to one another. We can't look down on others because of their social status, because of, of their moral standing, because the gospel levels the playing field. You, you have to see that before we get into what the church was doing. If the gospel levels the playing field, if that's the case, what will the people really look like? See, the gospel transcends and brings people together, the moral, the rich, the poor, the haves, the have-nots. We have one thing in common. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Every mouth 
may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For if while we, uh, Paul says in Romans, were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son much more than that we are reconciled shall we saved by his life. That's all, we have all that in common. It's, it's this commonality that we share. It's the foundation of our communities. There is no condemnation for that is in Christ, that of those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the footing of this relationship. You need to see that that launched them into verse 42, 43 through 47. And I know it's a long introduction, but what I want you to see, that, that just gathering together like the early church just gathering together like it does not provide healthy community. It does not provide Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-glorifying communities. It's, it's when we gather with the gospel at the center that will do it. Just gathering together and say, let's just do what they did doesn't work. It's gathering around the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the gospel that you, my friends, and I were on our way to hell and there is no way for us to reach God. That God came to us. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what kind of upbringing. I don't care if you read your Bible since the day you were born. God rescued you and rescued me. And that brings us all to the same place where we can share together, no matter what background, no matter what culture, no matter what social uh, you know, place you're at in this world. And, and that, that, is what transfer. Remember, the goal is not merely to fill our heads with knowledge or even our gatherings, but that the gospel move our hearts to worship and to transformation. That is so important, and, and, and I want you to see that. You have to see that before we get into our text, okay? Let me just warn you, it's a long introduction, long first point. Hang with me, and then we're going to go through the second two very quickly. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to first look at the theology, and we're going to spend some time in there, and then uh, we'll, we'll, it'll go quicker, right? So we've got theology. Here's the outline, for those of you who like to take outlines. Um, theology, commonality, okay, doxology, and missiology. I know it's corny. That's all I can come up with right now, okay? And they're all, that's it, all right? So that's what we're going to do, but we're going to spend some time. So see that. The church is launched. They're convicted of their sins. I'm wicked. I'm going to hell. You murdered him. Yes, I did. What do I do? Repent. Oh, forgiveness. Explosion of joy. Oh, my. All of a sudden, verse 42, they devoted themselves. See that? To the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. The first thing I want you to notice in that text is, is the word Devoted. Because gospel communities are marked by continual devotion. That word means persistent, consistent, continual, right? But it also has a sense of not only something doing regularly, but has a sense of, of um, doing it together. It has a sense in that word to, to give yourself to someone. Uh, one commentator talks about, uh, one, it was a Greek lexicon, I think it was, to attach yourself to someone. That's why some translations, if you have one, uh, that says they committed themselves. It was a joint effort of pouring themselves out, devoted themselves to one another on a regular basis. They were the habitually devoting themselves in a lifestyle. See that? In a lifestyle, regularly devoting, pouring themselves out in a lifestyle that has to do with what? First, the apostles' teaching. Why? Because the apostles in Jesus' day 
brought the authenticity and the authority of the message because they were appointed by Jesus himself. Apostolic authority. They had apostolic authority. According to chapter 1, verse 2, they were the chosen ones of Christ. Jesus himself chooses the 12. Today we're going to be choosing deacons and deaconesses, and we're asking God, show us. We'll decide. 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells, tells Timothy to appoint elders. That was, again, man's decision. These 12, the 12 apostles, were chosen by Christ himself. Anyone here that actually was chosen by Christ himself? No. Okay, that's the answer, no. Jesus shows up and gives them, he says in chapter 1, many proofs. And he shows the apostles, getting them ready to, to, to die a martyr's death. He says, touch me, have lunch with me, walk with me for 40 days. And the apostolic authority that Paul talking about here is what he said to the Ephesian church, that the apostles are the foundation of the church. They are the authors of Scripture. It's unquestioned and unconditional authority in their teaching. Paul, very interesting passage. Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He's talking about tongues. He's talking about the expression of tongues in the body. He's talking about prophecy. And he says, very interesting, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing, that's scripture, to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he should not be recognized. Right? So, listen, that sounds great. Everyone's got a voice. That's fine. But you know what? What's the final authority? Scripture. Paul says, what I'm writing to you, if they don't recognize that, it doesn't matter what they say. They need to understand that the teaching of the apostolic teachers was standard. It's not to be checked. It is to be received, he says, as the Lord's command. He writes in Thessalonians to the church, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed, but don't regard him as an enemy, but, but warn him as a brother. What I'm saying to you takes precedent. That's what he's saying. What that means is that the teaching of the authority, the teaching and authority of the apostles were unique. Here it is. Really simple. Here it is. And, and, and what is this book about? Remember I said last week when I ever asked a question, what's usually the answer? Jesus. Yeah, that's good. You're catching on. Okay. Scriptures reveal Jesus. Today we take the Bible, we study the apostolic letters in the Scripture. We don't add to them. What we do is we explain it through good hermeneutics, which is the how, how to interpret passage of Scripture. We try to figure out what was God saying through Paul, as Paul wrote to the original audience, the original writer, the original audience, what was the point? What was he trying to convey? And when we get that, we say, all right, now how do we apply it to our lives? The apostolic teaching of Scripture. So we gather, too, in the apostolic teaching. We have it in the Bible. We at Kings believe that God wrote one book, the Scripture. We believe it is perfect, it has final authority over all things. Everything is subject to the scripture. You need to hear that. So if we're talking, I break out my Bible, God is speaking. And the big idea, the big picture of the Bible is Jesus. Now the Bible is our gift from God, but it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Praise God. We don't need another book about you. Okay? Or me. And they were constantly, continually devoted to the word of God. So... 
you know, there are a lot of things we are consistent in. I'll tell you what, every single morning I get up and I get a cup of coffee. I know what you thought I was going to say, but I didn't say it. I'm like, you know, I'm consistent. If there's no coffee, which I don't think ever happened, but if there was any, I'm going to the store. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going because I'm consistent on certain things. The question is, am I consistent with Scripture? Am I consistent with hearing the Scriptures taught? Now, of course, I'm the teaching pastor here, but I listen to a lot of other people. I listen to a lot of sermons. You know, I try to get, I go to conferences once to two times a year. I need to be fed too, even though I'm being fed teaching and preaching. Don't get me wrong. But we need to be under the word of God. So are you coming and gathering? Are you coming and gathering under the word of God? Are you reading the scripture? Are you under the apostolic teaching of the word of God? That's what they were when they were filled with the Spirit. Number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship. See what it says? Now, it is explained, I believe, in verse 44 through 45, but for now, you need to know that the word fellowship is that word many of you know, koinonia. It's not a picture of this cold meeting, this, this union meeting, or this, this uh, uh, meeting to gather and figure out how, we, how these flowers are going to grow. It's not that cold informal meeting. It, it's, it's not, I want to convey this correctly. It's not just having coffee and donuts together. It's not sitting by the campfire and, and eating s'mores together. Although that, that's not what, what the New Testament fellowship really means. I'm not saying you shouldn't drink coffee and have donuts or have s'mores because I like doing that stuff. Um, what I'm saying, though, biblical New Testament fellowship means sharing life together with a common interest and common activity. It is the practice of the people of God joining hearts together, but also practical ways that we share in the efforts to live out the gospel. To live out the gospel and bring the good news about Jesus to others. I call them gospel conversations. It doesn't mean every word out of your mouth has to be Jesus, although that might be good. Um, But it's gospel-centered. Its trajectory, its activity is formed around the truth of the gospel. What's also interesting about koinonia is it, that word is used many times of, of, of sharing a meal, which he says next. He says, um, they're teaching and to fellowship, shared life together, and the breaking of bread. Paul will use it in 1 Corinthians, and he tells them to flee from idolatry because sharing meals together wasn't just a Hebrew thing. A one true God serving in the temple, they would, they would sacrifice animals, they would sit down and eat together, uh, but it was done in paganism too. So Paul's like, listen, you, you, can't, you can't go to the pagan temple, don't, don't do that, he writes in 1 Corinthians, flee from idolatry, he says, but I speak sensible to you, judge yourself. The cup of the blessing that we bless, the communion that we eat together, is it not the koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation, the koinonia in the body of Christ? There is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. And what he's saying is, when we gather together at the Lord's Supper, we break bread, we share together, and we participate in the covenant blessings of the shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Jesus dies for our sins, and we get to be a part of that we get to share in that of course the only thing we're bringing is our sin he's bringing his righteousness but that's that's a commonality of sharing things and i believe in 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 this passage 
Luke is talking about the early church that they would fellowship together and they would break bread. They would have a communal meal together. We're going to have one today. And at the end of the meal, they would break bread, pointing to the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the shedding of his blood. We're going to have communion today too. That's what I think he's pointing to. And then finally he says in this passage that it is also prayer. He says they, 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 they taught, they fellowship, they broke bread, both in a communal meal and, and the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. You notice that it says? The prayers. There's an article there, the prayers. And I think Luke is pointing to the Jewish people who would regularly attend the temple during the time of prayer. Remember what this is written now. These new Christians were Jewish, and they had a lot of Jew- Jewishness they're working through. So there was times that they would go to the temple that were called for, and they would all attend the temple and, and to pray. Now, there's a, we're going to see a lot of this when we go through Luke. There's a tremendous cultural transition going on. This is brand new. Their eyes were open to the gospel. They see Jesus alive, and what they're doing, what they always do, and they go to the temple to pray. Okay? They go to the temple to pray. They love to pray. They were praying together. A church that gathers in the fullness of the Spirit will pray together. They will sing. They will make gladness and joy in their hearts. I'm sure it continued not only in the temple, but in their homes. They broke bread together and had meals together. They were praying together. Oh, but this time. This time, it was in the name of Jesus Christ. This time it was in the name of the crucified and risen Lord. You see, the gospel radically changed the prayer language of God's people. And now they're going into the temple praising and worshiping Jesus. When Christ died on the cross, if you remember the story, the veil was torn in two, top to bottom, making access to the throne of God not only possible for everyone, not just the priest, but also made it clear That prayer comes through Jesus. Through Jesus. Colossians 1. And you, that's us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's you and me. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's our reconciliation. In order to present you and me holy and blameless above reproach before him. Our our access to our cleansing, our holiness, our blamelessness is because of Jesus. And now their prayers, their language has changed. Every time we gather together, we pray. Community groups gather together and they pray. When the pastors gather on a a regular basis, we pray. We pray for you individually, many of you. We pray for the church generally. And we bathe our time in prayer whenever and wherever the church meets. It needs to be, what needs to be done is woven into that life, a life of prayer. Prayer seeks God's direction. Praying says, I'm dependent on you. I'm dependent on your, I'm dependent on direction. It humbles and it acknowledges our our total dependency upon the living God. I heard a sermon this week and, and, and the man said, you know, those who don't pray think that it's all on them. That, that it's all about them. And I was, just, I was just reminded, I need to pray more. 
I need to bow my knee and recognize who's Lord of this church, who's head of this church, who's the senior pastor of this church. It's not me, it's Jesus. And, and, and they prayed. And look at verse 43, in awe. It said, awe came upon every soul. Wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They lived in a state of, of awe and wonder and fear of the Lord. I think this is one of those passages we have to be careful, we have to have a balance. Because some people here may even see fear of God and, and, and think, oh my, you know, that there's this God in heaven with this big stick and, and he's waiting to hurt me every chance he gets. That wasn't that kind of fear. It wasn't that kind of fear. They understood how great and awesome and glorious God was and that they were entering into his presence and worshiping him. On the flip side of that, Paul tells us that we have received the spirit where we cry out, Abba, Father. So that balance of intimacy with God that we are his children and yet the awe and respect of who he really is. That's the balance we must fight and keep in our Christian walk. Also tricky in this passage, I just want to talk about it for a minute, is signs and wonders. The Bible's clear. The Bible's clear. Those who seek after signs and wonders, Jesus said, is a wicked and adulterous generation. We're not looking for the newest sign and wonder. We're pursuing Jesus. Right? We're pursuing Jesus. We're not chasing signs. We're, we're running after Jesus. Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs, Greek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God. Those who seek signs, sign seekers, become a distraction, a deviation from the power of the Christ that was crucified and rose again. Signs don't save, only the gospel does. Signs don't transform the heart, only the gospel does. Satan can imitate signs and wonders, and he often does. But what changes the heart is when our souls, when our hearts see the authentic gospel, the truth and the glory of Christ in the message of the gospel. But can wonders and signs happen today? That's a question a lot of people ask. I think they can. I think they can. Some people say, well, you know, the Bible teaches that the signs of a true apostle are signs and wonders, which is true. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that, that in 1 Corinthians 12, that the sign of a true apostle are those who have been empowered to, to, to perform these, these great signs and wonders. And wherever they were going, they were, they were performing miracles as if to say, yes, God is with me. That is very true. That is very true. But there are other people in the Bible that talks about doing signs and wonders that weren't apostles like Peter, excuse me, like um, Stephen and Philip. Are there abuse? Yes. Are there signs and wonders performed by Satan getting people away from the gospel? Yes. If you watch any of those crazy people on TV, one thing you'll notice that's missing with this pursuit of signs and wonders today, and it's the gospel. I can't help but watch some of these people on TV or hear them on the radio, and I'm listening and I'm waiting. And believe me, that's hard because I want to smash the TV. But I'm, I'm listening and I'm waiting. Where's repentance of sin? Like, where is turn, wicked, repent, Jesus? Where's the Jesus-exalting, you know, Christ-honoring worship? It's not there. It's about signs and wonders. Then you will know. Then you will know. 
If it's not Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, I don't believe it's of God. John Piper puts a great balance. He says this, On the one hand, we ought to honor the uniqueness of Jesus and the apostles and of all that revelatory moment, you know, time in history that gave us the foundational doctrines of faith and life in the New Testament. On the other hand, we ought to be open to the real possibility that this too might be a unique moment in history. And in this moment, it may well be God's purpose to pour out his spirit in unpresentable, can't get that word out, presented revival, revival of love to Christ and zeal for worship and compassion for lost people and a missionary thrust and signs and wonders. So what he's saying is, was it unique in that time? Absolutely. Could God do it today? Absolutely. But you know what? It'll be Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, love for people, on mission, declaring the gospel. Not send me 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and my show is completely about the supernatural. That is not biblical. That's just not biblical. I hate to point it out, but it's just not biblical. So theology, let me wrap that up. So the early church being gospel-centered, motivated were, by the gospel, were persistently and regularly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? They were learning about the gospel. They were in fellowship, having commonality around the gospel. They were breaking bread, a time of remembering the gospel. And they had a life of prayer, and prayer was what? Gospel-centered. Please see that. Please see that. Okay, now we're going to go faster, okay? That was the long part. Commonality, let's just hit this. What you see here is the working out of verse 42 and verse 43. It says in verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as many as any had need. Okay? They were distributing everything they had. They, they were giving to those who had need. And I think we need to say we're not talking about communism. Okay? And I'm not trying to get political. Trust me. But it's also not government takeover and seizing of the wealth and giving it to everybody else in a New Testament sense, okay? Believe me, I'm not getting political. But that's not what's called. That's not what's going on here. It's also not David Koresh who's got this mandate that everyone should sell everything and bring it to him. And then he'll decide, as he did in Waco, Texas. Or Spriggs, anybody here of the 12 tribes? They were in Cooksaki for a while. They're up in, in Greene County now. A guy by the name of Gene Spriggs. I did a paper on him when I was in Bible school. The Jesus Movement from 1972. His whole idea was we need to go back to the first century church, Acts chapter 2, and everyone needs to give me everything. And he flies around in his jets and everybody else lives as a pauper. That's not what it's saying here. Okay? That's not what he's saying. Here's a good time to take a break and tell you that there are differences between principles and methods of Scripture. You need to see that, especially studying Acts. Principles and methods. Principles, remember, folks, some of you have heard this before. Principles are in the closed hands. Methods are in the open hand. Principles don't change. We hold to them. They're countercultural. They're, they uh, transcend culture. And methods are how do we live those principles out in our culture? When we do this, we are rigid. Do it my way. When we do this, we have nothing to offer. Because we don't stand for anything. We don't believe anything. So we believe, sing to the Lord. It's going to look different in China than it does in Russia and it does in America. Read the scripture. What time's good for you? No, no, no. 4 a.m., 12 minutes, this version. No, no, no. We're going to be like this. We're going to hold to the scripture to sing and make melody to the Lord. We're going to hold the scripture. Guys, love your wives. How? I don't know. Ask her. She'll tell you. 
okay? But that's the principle. We don't want to be liberal. We don't want to be closed-handed and fight for everything. We want to be open-hand, closed-hand, okay? That's what it means to, to have principles and methods. You know, and some people like their methods. I like my ESV, but I'm not fighting you over it. I don't like rap music. Some of you might. I'm okay. We're not doing it here. But, you know, it's good to, to have principles and, and to like them. That's okay. But let's, let's not fight over that. Let's, let's hold firm to the principles, but let's be open and dialogue about methods. Right? They're going to look differently in different cultures. Okay? They're going to look differently in different cultures. But when God's people lose their flexibility in their methods, what they're saying is, come to Jesus and then come to the way I do it. That's not good. Or open hand is like, ah, all roads lead to heaven, worship Jesus, don't worship Jesus, repent, don't repent. No, no, repent. Worship Jesus, right? Worship Jesus. We do it this way. We sing three songs before the sermon. Some people do two. Some people do one. I don't know, but sing and make a melody to your heart. That's the method, right? But the repent principle remains the same. And so what you see here in, in this culture, in this, in this part about commonality, is there's a lot going on in Jerusalem. I don't know if you realize that, but in Jerusalem at that time, there were possibly hundreds of thousands of people coming from all over the world, and they needed a place to stay. They needed this, this, this giving and this, this uh, serving and... and, and you know, it's a little bit different than it is today. I don't believe 44, verse 44 is prescribing communal living in every situation and in every culture. Let me ask you, does the Bible give us the right to have personal property? Or do we have to give it all up? Well, let me answer that for you. Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> you can't steal if it don't belong to you, right? So, I mean, that answers that question. Um, so it was a little bit different. There were people traveling, and, and, and they needed hospitality, and they needed to, 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 to serve each other in that way. But, but, now listen carefully, but we can't just say this doesn't apply to us. See, the methods may be different, but the principle is clear, not only in this text, but all of the Bible, that we are to be a generous people. We are to be ready to share with those in need. Yet we have to be careful we don't squander our money. Yeah, the Bible talks about giving, you know, not giving someone who just squanders, who just, who just you know, refuses to work, 2 Thessalonians. But if a brother and sister is in need, the Bible says clearly, and if we can meet that need, we ought to do that. In fact, 1 John says that if we don't, we should question whether God's love abides in us. See, we're so quick to just be mine, 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 and I'm in the same boat as you. That we miss the principle of this passage where it says to be generous, to give, to be open-handed, to, to love. In fact, the word selling and distributing, uh, the, the verb there is that they were constantly doing it. It wasn't a one-time sell it all, give it to the, to the apostles. They saw a need, they were willing to sacrifice. And that, that's the principle. You see a need, are you willing to sacrifice? That's a tough one, man. You know it is. You know, are you, are you willing to sell something you have so that somebody else who doesn't have can have the basics, food, clothing, shelter? That, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Luke has a lot to say about money and distributing. 
throughout his gospel. He tells about a parable of a rich man. Actually, Jesus says, let me give you this quote from Jesus first. Jesus says this in Luke 12. Take care, be on your guard against covetousness, against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus tells about a rich man. Remember the story? He sees all the crops. He's got so much, like, I got to rip down my barns. I got to build bigger barns. I'll fill them all up. And what I'll do is I'll sit back in my rocking chair and my fishing pole in the easy chair relaxing. And I'll say, oh, soul, you've done so well. I'm going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, man, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Won't be his. That's the point. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Folks, again, I'm going to keep coming back to this. The motive behind this community's practice is the gospel. Once you meet Jesus, once you receive the Holy Spirit, he will awaken you to be generous. Because Jesus is the most generous giver ever. He is hugely generous. Who could tell me the name of the apostle who was the hoarder and the taker and not the giver? Judas. Judas was the taker. Jesus is the giver. Who are we supposed to be like? Jesus the giver or Judas the traitor? I'll let you decide that. I think the answer is pretty clear. And here we see people motivated by the gospel, becoming hugely generous. And some of you saying, you know why? Well, we're talking about money here. Here we go again. The church talking about money. I'm not. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your idols. I'm talking about my heart. I'm talking about my idols. They had all things in common, and they were willing to give. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. Doxology, verse 46, and day by day. There's devotion. They were day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread, gathering around the Lord's Supper, sharing a meal in their homes. They received their food with gladness, generous hearts. They were willing to serve and to care for each other's needs. Verse 47 says, what took place next? Praising God, having favor with all the people. Man, they were in worship together. That's doxology. Worship with gratitude and gladness and joy, singing and making melody in our hearts, worshiping the one true and living God. All that he has done, rescuing me from hell and dying for my sins. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one who did what Jesus did. There's no one worthy of our worship than Jesus and joy and glad hearts accompany this gospel life that we see lived out in our text. Worship and praise is ongoing. Where did the worship take place? Large settings and smaller settings, day by day. Right? They were, they were in Sunday morning, we gather, worship, then we, we break out into homes. There are some that say, you know what, the New Testament church, back in the day when Jesus was walking, all they met was in small settings and in homes. Just read him that verse right there. They attended the temple together. They gathered in large settings together. They gathered on Sunday morning together because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday morning. And we meet together here Sunday morning. We meet together in homes. We call them community groups. It's not one or the other. It's both. If you're only part of, of, of a community group and you're not gathering corporately together to hear the teaching of the apostles and, and the breaking of bread and the fellowship together and you're only in community group, you're not understanding the fullness of gospel life. 
If you're only meeting here Sunday morning, you're not gathering together in, in smaller homes, breaking bread, getting in each other's lives, you're not understanding the fullness of the gospel community. Again, what is the principle? In that day, they would meet at the temple. We don't go to the temple. We come to the church. Okay, I also think there's some differences with time restraints. That's why we have community groups that meet at different times. We're, we're working on getting more community groups because there's some of you to, that, you know, it's not working out with your schedule. We're trying to make times happen because we have different schedules. Some, some good in the morning, some at night, some in the weekend. It's, it's very difficult, but we're working through that because we have time restraints that I don't think they had back then, but we're working on it because we're, we're trying to keep the principle. Big group, small group, here's the methods. Big house, small house, apartments. You know, we meet in different places. The point is, and the principle is, the larger gathering, the smaller gathering. We, have, we live in a culture that's not only fast-paced, but it's technological, so we have the table. The table's a place where we're, because of our fast-paced life, I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it is, that we have an online application where we can connect with each other with our phones. So we're staying in contact with each other. Again, the principle is living life together. So we, we try to, to, to look at what we have. We try to, to build that life together with one another. Uh, you know, it, it's a part of our Imago Dei. It, we're created in the image of likeness of God. We ought to love each other, encourage each other, lift each other up, you know. And, and it's only in that setting will the gospel really be lived out. Gospel communities of people that live together, eat together, share one another's personal, social, emotional, and spiritual lives together. We make these giant decisions of our lives outside of community. It was never meant to be that way. We ought to live together. Now, living life together, and you guys that are in community groups know, life can get messy. Life can get messy. People say things and do things. And you're thinking about that person that does that, and they're thinking about you. But, <laughs> but life gets messy. That's why it's got to be gospel-centered. That's why we have to be humble. That's why we have to be generous. That's why we have to remember of all my sin that I am wicked and dirty and filthy and deserve hell until Christ cleansed me and washed me and called me his own. We keep that at the center of our lives. So are you invited, are, are you participating in the larger groups? Are you, invi- uh, you know, are participating in community groups? I want to invite you, I want to encourage you to take time and get involved with God's people. We have, talk to me afterwards, go online, get connected. You can fill out a community group placement form. We'll try to get you plugged in. So the principles of scripture, like discipleship, making disciples, we contextualize the methods to fulfill the principles so that believers worship and fellowship together in everyday environment while providing a place to invite friends, to invite co-workers, to invite fellow students, to see the gospel lived out, to hear the gospel proclaimed so that they too can worship God. And what's that called, our final point? Missiology. It's, it's how we do things. It's the methods on how we fulfill the principles to go into the world. It'll look different. 50 years from now, it looked different 50 years ago. When you think of missional, think sentness. Jesus said, I have not come to, to I, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. The Father sent the Son into the world to die for sin. The Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit to apply to salvation, to open our hearts, to live on mission. Jesus says, the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. 
That's what this is all about. And when it's done well, when it's contextualized, in other words, when it's explained in the culture and the place in which we find ourselves, when it's done well, look what happens. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. They were going to the temple where everyone hung out on Saturday at that time, right, right after Pentecost, and they were giving testimony to Jesus Christ, and they were living on mission right in Jerusalem, right in the temple, declaring and worshiping and pointing people to Jesus. That's what they were doing. That's where the crowds were. And God responds to their faith and blessed this young community, adding people regularly and daily to the numbers. How we do things, methods, how we do it will look different in different cultures. We don't change the message. The gospel remains the same. It's how we live our lives. Change. Okay? And I I don't want to get too much into that. Principles and methods. The way we do it here, we gather on Sunday, we break into community groups. We have online online an application where we can connect with one another. That's how we do it. That's how we do it here. And then we're, we're praying that God would use us for his glory and our joy. Now, let me, let me wrap this up. Let me bring it all the way around. Why were they full of joy and worshiping in community? Why were they devoted? They, why were they pouring themselves out with great generosity toward one another? Because Jesus poured himself out for them. Jesus devoted his life for them. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, he did not hold on to Jesus. He did not remain in heaven. He was sent. He gave him up for us all. The life of Jesus poured out for us. Paul says, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Devotion and grace because of Jesus. We sinned against God and God gave us his son. He lived without sin even though we are sinful and he gave us his life. Jesus rises and gives us his righteousness. He ascends into heaven and he gives us intercession. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us the guarantee that our inheritance, our eternal inheritance, is secured and kept in heaven waiting for us. How could we not be devoted to one another? This whole passage of Scripture is bathed and centered in the gospel. It is the explosion of knowing that you escape eternal hell through the work of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Let that produce generosity and love and joy and sacrifice because of the sacrifice for you and for me. Because if you try to produce this any other way, you get legalism, you'll get coercing, and manipulating and you'll just be gathering together and bitter. What I'd like to see here is us gathering together through the gospel with joy and gladness and worship of the one true God who gave himself for us and therefore we are devoted to one another. There's a a big difference between the two if it's not gospel-centered. 
This table here, as the band comes up, this table here represents the death of Jesus, the bread, his body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed. It's, it's not, it's, it is not, although we come up one at a time, but it's not a meal that is shared singularly in our in, independent kind of uh, uh, culture we live in. It's a family meal. If you belong to Jesus, we want you to come. We want you to take the bread and the cup. The band's going to play. We're going to repent of sin. The whole church responds in repentance of sin because we have sin to repent of. If you don't, ask the person next to you. They'll give you the list. We repent of sin. How have I not been gracious? How have I not been uh, grateful? How have I not uh, uh, given to those? How have I hoarded in my heart? How have I not worshipped? How have I not gathered together? How have I not made time to be in community together? Whatever it is, you heard the message, respond with repentance and celebrate. Because the bread that represents there is his body that was broken. The cup represents the blood that was shed so that you can have forgiveness. And not only forgiveness of sin, but he can empower you with his spirit to repent and turn and to walk faithfully with him. So if you're a Christian, come up when you're ready. The band's going to play. We're going to repent. If you're not a Christian, give your life to Christ. Repent from your sins. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your need to that you crucified him. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And when you do that, turn to him. He'll forgive you. He loves you. He loves you. And then come and have communion together. Father, Lord, Lord, I sense that I know there are some here that um, need a touch, need, need a healing of a heart that may have been broken and, and, and some uh, a sense of, of just not letting go of some things. So, Father, we pray that as we sing and as we worship, your spirit would do a great work in their heart and bring a healing to their broken heart, Lord. We pray that, Father, as we take of the Lord's Supper, as we break the bread, as we drink the cup, Father, our hearts would be full of, of gladness and joy because of the generosity you showed us at the cross of Calvary. Father, we pray that as a church, we will just not gather for gathering's sake, but we will gather around Christ. The good news of the gospel and the declaration and the demonstrating of that gospel to others. Lord, help us always be mindful that we are called in by Jesus and sent out by Jesus as good missionaries, Lord, so that we may share the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, bless this place, Lord, for your glory, our joy, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.